0: I bet you if I were to go around this room this morning and if we walked around with a microphone and I were to ask uh, each of you to share some form of struggle, trial, affliction, uh, that we could be here for days talking about difficulty in our lives. Because we all face difficulty. We all face difficulty of many kinds. And that's what the psalmist is addressing here. This isn't the first time he's addressed it in the psalm nor other biblical writers. Difficulty is a fact of life. Affliction is a part of life. It's hard. It's hard, but I want you to know today that it's purposeful. God brings affliction into your life and into my life in order to to train us in his word, in order to help us find comfort in his love as we're learning to long for home. And if you're a Christian, home is heaven. God brings affliction into our life purposefully to train us in his word and to help us find comfort in his love as we learn to long for home. And so I want to tell you this morning about, about three things. We're going to see the purpose of affliction, the source of affliction, and the outcome of affliction. And, and I'll word that a little bit longer as we get to each point, which will not be a surprise to many of you. Uh, but uh, these things are important for us to understand, and I will tell you why. From the time that we are children, we, we begin trying to put together the pieces of this life, of this world. When something happens that confuses us, We scratch our heads as children. I mean, I mean, littles. We begin with a furrowed brow to kind of try to make sense of this person and this action and this pain or whatever the case might be. And as children, we just use whatever's available to us. But, you know, that's true for adults as well. As we grow up, we learn to use whatever's available to us. And that's why God is so kind to give us his word, because God is not a a cosmic joker looking to just wreak havoc and bring pain into the lives of people on this teeny, teeny, tiny little earth that he made. He's not an unkind child out there with a magnifying glass playing with insects and just watching the sun come through the magnifying glass and bringing undue, unnecessary harm to insects. That's not God. It's not his character. We're often looking for the silver lining in things. You have a friend who's hurting and you want to bring them comfort. You want to bring them joy in the midst of the pain. And let's just be honest, right? Would you raise your hand and say, I don't always know what to say. I don't always know what to say. And so we say something like, well, everything happens for a reason or you just got to look to try to find the silver lining. And you know, those there's truth in those things. Those are truisms. But as we understand God's sovereignty, God's providence at work in the lives of, of, of everyone on this earth and your life in particular, you will learn much deeper, much richer truth that fills out... Everything happens for a reason, or there's a silver lining. His name is God, and he's at work in your life. Parents, you have such a critical and and such a, 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 a precious, uniquely created and divinely appointed opportunity to learn how God works in the lives of his people according to his word. So that as you give answers to your children for why they get made fun of at school or, or why your family doesn't make the same decisions that other families make and they get made fun of or, or why something happened with mommy or with daddy or with grandma or with grandpa or cousins, you have the privilege of opening up God's word to them. And whether you're holding the Bible open or just conveying with your lips, the truth of God's word, you get to go much deeper than well, everything happens for a reason. I don't know. What a privilege that is. What a gift God has given us as parents to be able to teach them God's sovereignty, God's providence. It gives backbone to your faith. And I will tell you, friends, we live in, a, in, an, in an America where we need backbone to our faith. We need not be apologetic. We don't have to apologize for God. We don't have to shave off what we think are the rough edges. No, it's our, it's our delight to come around and bring ourselves un, in, under submission and understanding of who God is and how he works. But I will tell you, that doesn't happen overnight. It happens through steady, persistent growth and understanding who God is and in his word, right? I just want to say, half an inch, we love those noises. And I called you out by name, sorry, but we love the noise of children here, right? God's handiwork. Children that we get to raise up and teach the truths of God's word. You know, it helps to think about several kinds of affliction. I'll mention five. You could probably come up with some more this morning. Suffering is common to everyone. Every one of us, as I said in the beginning, endures some kind of suffering, right? If you ride a bike long enough, you're going to get bumps and bruises. You're going to get scrapes at some point in time, right? You play a sport long enough, probably going to get hurt at some point in time. Everybody goes through what we might call common suffering to everyone. And then the, the second kind of suffering would be corrective suffering, right? Corrective suffering and discipline. They would be synonymous here. Uh, the Psalmist is talking about that kind of suffering here in the first two sections of what Todd read for us this morning. He, he's acknowledging, he's agreeing with God that, that these uh, afflictions he endured are sent by God for the express purpose of, of helping him know God's word so that he can get back onto the path of living according to God's word. And you're going to see that explicitly in the text this morning, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. This is not a man talking about uh, before he was a believer, but as, as God's man, before I knew your God, uh, before I was afflicted with these afflictions, I went astray. But now I keep your word. This is discipline. This is discipline. And who disciplines us except a father who loves us. No one likes discipline at the time. Discipline, I want you to remember, is not, is not punitive. Discipline is not punishment. And this is where uh, parents, grandparents, it's important to use uh, helpful words as we talk to our kids about uh, w- what we're doing as we're training them. We're not punishing them. We're not trying to bring purposeless pain. We're not trying to get them back for anything. There's purpose in discipline. The discipline we receive from the Lord, and at times the discipline we receive from one another, maybe that's parents, sometimes the government, sometimes the church. God's instituted all three to bring discipline into one another's lives. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, however, Jesus didn't receive, didn't discipline because he had not sinned. He received punishment. He received the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. Aren't you glad that if you're trusting in Jesus this morning for your salvation, there's no wrath that remains for you. Every drop of it was poured out on Jesus at Calvary. There is not an ounce, not a drop of a drop of wrath that remains for you. Jesus Jesus was, was trained in his obedience, but Jesus did not have to be trained in godliness. I want you to remember that Jesus did not need to be trained in godliness. He was perfect in thought and in word. Hebrews 12 gives us a a helpful thought about discipline here. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. Notice that emphasis. There's a difference in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Just think on that for a second. Next time you're feeling sorry for yourself, my life is hard. I'm being disciplined. I don't like this. Come on, God. Don't you know I'm trying? I'm doing my best. Well, yeah, but you haven't yet resisted in how hard you're fighting against sin that you've shed your blood for those who can't. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the discipline, for he, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises everyone whom he receives as a son. It is for discipline. It is for training in righteousness that you have to endure for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons and not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our fathers, disciplined us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For at the moment, old discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it reveals peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so beyond common affliction, corrective affliction. Some, some suffering is simply constructive. In other words, you may not be experiencing affliction because you've sinned, but simply because God is training you simply because God is making you the man or woman of God that he is calling you to be right. If we're not careful, sometimes we can misconstrue the idea of of constructive suffering is coming from a God who's who's indifferent to our pain or the struggle that he's brought our way. And sometimes we'll, we'll think he's uncaring, like I said earlier, like a cosmic joker who just is kind of bringing random suffering. There is not one atom in this universe that is random. Everything in this universe is exactly where God wants it to be, when God wants it to be, for how long God wants it to be. Romans 5 gives great hope and encouragement here. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, let's just pause. It's easy to kind of move through this pretty quickly. When's the last time you suffered and you were like, yes. (laughs) I can't wait to see where this is going. I love this. Nobody does that until you're in the middle of it. And then you say, oh, I don't know what all is going on now, but I know that God's at work. I see that God's up to something, you know, different, but kind of like some of those kids you might have in your family. And you're like, you see a certain look on their face and you're like, what are you up to? Right? I mean, it's okay to ask a question like that to the Lord. Lord, where are you in this? What are you up to? What are you doing here? Because like, I hate this, but I love you and so i know something's going on i know something's going to go on and and i just know from experience what i say i hate right now i might just actually like in a few hours days weeks maybe months or years some 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 affliction is solely for the purpose of glorifying god john 9 we read a story and i don't have time to go into it in much detail but we we'll read a story of of jesus coming out of the temple and as he was coming out of the temple one of his own afflictions they were ready to stone him this was sort of like a a frequent thing in the life of Jesus, people pl- plotting his death and ready to take him out. And so he comes out of the temple and there's a man uh, sitting there not too far away that he walks past who was born blind, right? The disciples are, are following Jesus. They're learning about him. They're learning about sin and its consequences and discipline and punishment and, and, and God's plan and all these sorts of things. And, they, and they, they say, hey, what happened that this man is born blind? Did he sin or did his parents? And Jesus said, I'm paraphrasing. It was neither him nor his parents who sinned, but that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I want you to think about this. God created a man who was born blind. He lived his entire life blind. He had to learn how to navigate life differently, how to walk around town differently, how to trust his friends differently, holding the arm of a, a friend as he would walk around town. All of this, so that as Jesus is walking by some, however many years later, however old this man was, Jesus could could come by, Jesus could heal him, and it would be to God's glory. This is our God. And this is our good God. This is our good God. Right? You might have trouble with that. You might have trouble with that. You might have trouble that you mean God would would why do bad things happen to good people? Well, first, I mean, we can't do it all today, but we've got to reckon with the word good. So there's that. But the psalmist said in Psalm 86, 11, he said, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Listen to this next phrase. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, Lord, I believe. I want all of me to believe, but all of me doesn't believe. My heart's fractured. Like here, I, I want to follow you and I love you and I want to walk in your ways. But over here, like, I want to do my own thing. And the psalmist says, teach me your ways. What a humble prayer. Lord, I don't understand you. Teach me. Not, Lord, I don't understand you. What's your problem? Why are you doing? See, there's a different, different words, different tone, different approach, to the sovereign creator of all the universe. There's also cosmic suffering, the fifth kind of suffering that we experience. And that is sovereign, That is suffering that involves those in heavenly places, right? You think of the story of Job, right? The sons of man came to, came to present themselves before God, and Satan came with them. And a conversation ensued, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? I mean, like he just offered him up. Why? So that God might display His glory among all of the cosmic beings, Ephesians one tells us more about that. So now we've seen several kinds of suffering. It's important for us to see that what the psalmist is talking about here really involves suffering number two and three that I talked about, right? Corrective suffering and uh, and constructive suffering, and we see both of these mentioned in these two, uh, in these three sections of this psalm. God uses affliction to train us to understand and obey his word. And it sort of goes like this. God, God uses affliction to train us to understand and obey so that you really understand his word. Right. Because you know how it is when you, when you learn something in a class, it's great. You're applying, you've got the knowledge, you can pass the tests, but then when you get out and get a job, right, how many employers might say something like, okay, now everything you learned in school, just like stick it on the shelf. Do they, do they actually mean, none of that will be helpful to you in any way. No, what they actually mean is you've learned some things and they'll be helpful to you. But right now, trust me, follow me. When I tell you to go right, don't say, well, the textbook told me to do this. Follow me. God says, you've learned some things in my word and that is good. And now you're going through this trial. So abide with me, abide in me, trust me, follow me according to my word. Verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Listen to what he says in verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. This suffering brings the psalmist closer to understanding what God is teaching him in the Bible. At that point, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And I would tell you, brothers and sisters, sometimes we think, oh, we just love the New Testament, New Testament, New Testament. I would challenge you to see how much of the gospel save the actual person and words and name of Jesus Christ in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now there's hints of Jesus, foreshadowing of Jesus. The gospel is there in the first five books of the Bible. And this is what the psalmist had to work with, and maybe some psalms that had already been been penned, right? He learns fr- things from the scriptures that he would not have learned otherwise, unless it was a friend or a father telling him the scriptures. Which is why, to Todd's point earlier, we need to make sure we blow the dust off of our Bibles and be teaching these things to our children. Parents, teach your children now what you're learning now so that you can save them the grief uh, of having to learn the same lessons that you're learning. Open up in, 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 in uh, an appropriate way, whatever that might be for you and your family, what you're learning about the Lord. They can handle more than you think. Teach them the ways of God so that they will look to God and they will watch you as you suffer, as you struggle, and they will learn the ways of God through watching you as well as, as you teach them the word. So what the psalmist is saying, affliction provided time for him to pull back and study God's word. I love that many New Testament letters were written in prison. Oh Lord, I wish I just had time to write a letter to the church. Oh, I can help you with that. Oh Lord, I just pray for this jail ministry over here. I'd love to see people over here coming to know faith, even even uh, jailkeepers and whatnot. Oh, I got you. I can I can help you there. In fact, you'll be a cat. There'll be a captive audience. You can preach all day long. They can't do anything about it. You can sing. I'll handle the rest. Bars? Got it. The psalmist had time to study the word. It provided an impetus or a motive to study the Bible. It's good to have your Bible reading plans. It's necessary. It's helpful to have your Bible reading plans, but there are times to sort of, well, either continue doing your Bible reading plan and then add an an extra level of study to go after a particular thing that you're really, really, really wrestling with to understand what God says about a particular topic. Notice this constructive affliction, right? Uh, Hebrews 5, it says, although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And here the psalmist says in verse 81 and 88, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Do you notice notice the commitment that's attached to learning? Lord, teach me this and help me endure, and I will obey. Teach me this so that I can understand, so that I can tell others. There's always a motive that's attached to bringing God glory. God brings affliction to develop our endurance, our character, and our hope. And he comes to understand this increasingly and at deeper levels over and over again. This wasn't one simple suffering. Now, we don't know the exact scenario of this psalm, but this wasn't one simple suffering. It's too rich for that to be the case. Martin Luther knew the Bible well. In fact, he translated the Bible into the common language. And he said, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I have always found it, affliction, one of my best schoolmasters. So as Christians, we need to embrace affliction as our tutor, our helper from the Lord. The second point I want you to see is the source of affliction is coming from God's faithfulness. Or you might say, God, who is faithful. You ever seen someone come in and you thought, oh man, here comes trouble. I had a friend say to me yesterday, whenever you walk my way and you start with, I'm not going to tell you because I'm not going to give you my tell. (laughs) Whenever you start with this certain phrase, I know you need something. I was like, oh, true. (laughs) Right? Or you see someone coming and you're discouraged and you're like, oh, there's sunshine I need in my life today. you Right? Brother and sister, friend, when you see suffering coming, when you begin to experience affliction, what you can bank on is that your faithful heavenly father is working all things to the good of those who are called according to his purpose. He is shaping you. He is sharpening you. He is molding you to be more and more like the image of his son, Jesus. Verse 73, he says, you you made me then... Right, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. In other words, you made me in my mother's mother's womb. Now make me yours entirely. Make me look like you. Make me walk like you. Make me talk like you. Make me believe like you. Make me love like you. Make me hope like your people should hope. God, you know my strengths. You know my weaknesses. Sometimes we, we say, I'm guilty of this. I can't handle another day of it. Well, I will tell you that if you're experiencing it, God says you can handle another day. And there are times to come alongside of people and hold their hand and pat them on their shoulder and and come alongside with sympathy, and empathy, and encouragement, but there are also times to come along inside and say, brother and sister, stand tall. You're a child of the living God who loves you, who's shaping you, and you can handle this, not on your own strength, but with God's strength, and with the help of the body of Christ, look at God's word, lean into God's word, memorize God's word so that you might not, as Todd said, sin against the Lord, so that you might glorify God with your whole life, so that you can bring your perspective out of just uh, shrinking your perspective to just my world and my pain and my struggle and see, oh, this might not only be for me. This might not only be for me. Paul gives a a great promise in First Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. That's the hinge point. That's what anchors everything. God is faithful. God's faithful love is bringing you affliction. God's faithful love is bringing you affliction. Now, wait a minute. I thought it was these evildoers who were assailing me that are bringing me this trouble. I thought it was these people that in the the 80s of this passage tells us they're digging a pit for me. I mean, like, they want to put me in the earth. They want me to be six feet under. So who is it? Is it them bringing it or is it God? Yes, but God is the winner. Might you be so emboldened in your faith, not just to say, God allowed this. God allowed this. No, God brought it. God knows what he's doing. He's the author of my story. I'm a character in it. I'm clinging to him, and I know that he's good, and I can trust in him. I can bank my whole life on him, my finances on him, my children's lives on him, my church attendance, membership, family relationships, all these things we can bank on the Lord. He brings affliction because he's faithful. The psalmist says, you you are good and do good. Your character is good. It's who you are. It's not something you have. And you do good. Right? Because you are good, you do good. And God's law, God's truth, God's promise is all worth delighting in. Why? Because he's good. And because he does good. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart oh man, I've always wanted that car. If I just go to church more, man, no. No, when you delight in the Lord, your desires become the Lord's desires. He shapes your, he changes your want-tos. You see, through, through corrective instruction uh, co- and constructive affliction, the psalmist learns that the greatest desire of his heart is to know God through his word and learn to worship him by faith-filled obedience empowered by God himself. And there is nothing to drive you to the Lord better than affliction. How many of you? Best days of your life. Oh, it's a great day. It's sunny. There's music playing. Oh, I forgot to read my Bible today. I was so busy. I just had so much going on. When you are suffering, you make time. You grab your Bible and you pour over the scriptures. Why? Because in them you find hope. Only Jesus has the words of life. And so you press into the scriptures. Why? Because you have to. I remember having a conversation with uh, uh, a friend who was really going through some stuff several years ago. And I said, I just want to encourage you. I'm so thankful to see you here every single Sunday. He, and no, did not miss a beat. I got to. Exactly. Amen. I couldn't have said it better. I got to be here, pastor. So do I. So do I. God is faithful even in the affliction. I know, O Lord, verse 75, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Remember I said, "Who, who brought this affliction? These guys over here or the Lord? Yes. And the Lord is superseding it all. Since you're faithful to bring affliction, the psalmist reasons, you're faithful to bring comfort. That's what he says in verse 76. God's unfailing love is the comfort that the psalmist needs. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promises to your servant. God's compassionate, verse 77. That means merciful. That is the positive application of It's God's grace shown to those who are undeserving and in fact deserve the opposite. In other words, I don't just not deserve the kindness of God. I deserve the wrath of God. And God's compassion is not giving us what we need and giving us grace on top of that. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that's his name among others. Let your mercy come to me, verse 77, that I may live. That I may live. When's the last time you prayed that? God, give me your mercy so I can live. Your law is my delight. And out of his faithful love to others, God uses your affliction to comfort and to encourage others. I kind of hinted to this uh, a few minutes ago, but look at verse 79. He says, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. I'm suffering. Let those who fear you turn to me. I'll tell them your word. I'll do my best to encourage them. I'll preach the gospel. I'll tell them you're faithful. Give me strength, not just to make it to be able to put my head on the pillow. No, give me strength to be able to encourage others with your truth. Right? Do you, do you pray in your affliction like, how do others see my affliction, Lord? How, how do I live out my affliction in the midst of others so that others are positively affected by my struggle, by my challenge? I want God to get the glory. You begin to pray that others view God rightly through your affliction. You begin to ask how you can teach others through your affliction. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Parents, I want to encourage you again. I can't, instru- I can't encourage you strongly enough. When you're suffering, when you're enduring affliction, go beyond everything happens for a reason. We don't know the, the specific answer for every particular trial. No, but we do know that God is faithful. We do know that That God makes no mistakes. Not one. A challenge you're beset with. A besetting sin. An illness. Repetitious relationship struggles. Job struggles. Financial struggles. Every bit of it. Directed to shape you to be more like the Lord. Parents, help your your kids to see this in deep ways, in meaningful ways. And I will tell you, this doesn't mean that you have to be dried up from tears. You can be in your tears. You can be weeping. Mom, what's wrong? And you can be honest and help them to see that you're going through a struggle and that God is faithful. Well, why is this happening? I don't know if I can tell you the exact answer, But I can tell you this, nothing comes into your life and into my life that God does not wrap in a package and tie the perfect bow on as the perfect trial to make me more like Jesus. Your three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, nine-year-old, 12-year-old, 17-year-old, 20-year-old, begin to learn that. They'll never forget Mother's Day, Father's Day. Third, the outcome of affliction is learning to long for our eternal home. And I won't spend as much time in this section, but this psalm, sort of verses 81 through uh, 96, which that second part we'll look at next week, but 81 through 88 is kind of the beginning of the, the the center of the psalm, but also the center of the message of the psalm. I mean, this would be, if you're reading this psalm, this is the first time, verse 84, where a synonym of God's word, promise, about eight words used to refer to this that's not used in this verse. This would be the dark night of the soul for the psalmist. This would be deep, dark, what we kind of, kind of commonly call depression, discouragement, deep discouragement. Struggle, maybe Despair. I mean, he's really struggling. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Do you know what that's? How long? How long? How long, Lord? I'm so tired. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of being tired. When will you comfort me? Paul encourages us. I read it earlier, but I'll read it again because we need it again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. That means, that means you have to learn how to endure suffering well. Not just surviving, enduring through it, which produces character. Character produces hope, a steadfast confidence that you will see the promises of God because he's faithful and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to challenge you, friends. You're going to get all kinds of advice from friends. I want to be blunt, truthful, and Kind. Sometimes I've given people the worst advice. Sometimes I've heard Christians give people atrocious advice. Why? Well, because we feel for people. We don't like watching people hurt. We don't like watching people suffering. And so we say what makes sense according to our own understanding. The problem is we're not obeying uh, Proverbs you know, 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not, lean not, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, not some of your ways, not most of your ways, not the easier ways. In every single way that you can conjure up in your mind and your heart, uh, in all ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He will make your path straight. He will uphold you with his righteous right hand and keep your foot on the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Romans 8, I mean, all over the Bible, learning to long for home is learning to see the fulfillment of, I should say, learning by seeing the fulfillment of God's past promises applied to past and current situations, which is fuel for your faith that God will sustain you and that God will keep every promise that he has ever made. We use it as fuel for faith in God's future promises. Spurgeon says, this octave is the midnight of the psalm and very dark and black. But even in the darkness, stars shine out. And the last verse gives, he says, the promise of dawn. The verse prior, 87, they have almost made an end of me, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Do you see a man clinging to the Lord? I mean, he is breaking a spiritual sweat, doing everything that he is able to do in his human power and supernatural power to cling to the Lord. Don't be lazy in clinging to the Lord. Bust it all out. Put all you've got into practice. Call your friends. Drop your pride. I'm not sure what I believe anymore. I need you to pray. Oh, no, you know. No, pray. Okay. Don't talk me off. Of, just pray. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Put it like that. I need you to pray for me. Fantastic. Your friend calls you. Man, I'm really struggling. I need you to pray. Okay. Yeah. Don't forget to pray for them. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective in its working. God, the sovereign God who needs nothing, chose to use human prayer as a means for directing his working in ways that boggle the mind. But it's true. So pray. I have not forsaken your precepts, verse 88. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. There it is again. Give me life so that I can obey you because in obeying you is great joy. In obeying you is rich promises. Just very briefly, a lot of ancient writers have talked about uh, Hebrew letters and their shapes and different things like that. Well, one Uh, Some writers talk about this letter, kaf. It's kind of like a backward C. If you put it on its side like a U. And not to over-spiritualize anything, but if you just think this is often thought of as a a hand held out to receive some gift or blessing. And if we take this letter, this U-shaped letter when turned, turned on its side, and we say, God, I'm empty. Fill me. The world says meditation is emptying yourself. God says it's filling yourself with him and his word. I got nothing, Lord. You might not be somebody who raises your hands when we sing. That's okay. That's okay. Sometimes I raise my hands like this and praise. I feel like if I could just touch the ceiling, it wouldn't be high enough. Right? It doesn't make me any better than you. If, you don't, if that's not you, that's, that's okay. That's all this is about. But there are times I just hold my hands out like this. Just say, God, I'm really struggling. Really need you. I got nothing. Fill me with what you want me to give back to you. And isn't that what exactly what He did when Jesus came and gave His life on Calvary, so that through His death, burial, and resurrection, God's love through His Son could be poured into your hearts, so that you can face affliction with joy, with hope, with a smile, even through tears.